Business Class, a podcast sponsored by the iBear MBA program of the USC Marshall School of Business. Expert insight into the world of business. In this episode, Dick Drobnik conducts a phone conversation with Jack Wadsworth of Morgan Stanley Asia. This is Dick Drobnik. I'm interviewing Jack Wadsworth, who was responsible for developing Morgan Stanley's Asia franchise and a major part of the firm's global business. Jack is currently an honorary chairman of the Morgan Stanley Asia and advisory director of Morgan Stanley Globally. He's also chairman and co-founder of Cheyun Ventures, a China-based early-stage technology venture fund. Jack, could you start out by telling us a little bit about uh, Cheyun Ventures, and uh, then I might... I will ask you some questions about it. Uh, well, Dick, thank you. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to uh, be any part of the USC system that I can. Cheyon Ventures was um, initially conceived of by uh, my son, Chris Wadsworth, and myself. We had a vision in the early part of uh, the last decade uh, that China would be a place to uh, start investing uh, at an early stage uh, in new companies. Many people, uh, you know, had tried that idea going back over the 20 or so years uh, prior. And uh, I think anybody who got there before about uh, 2005 was too early. Um, uh, I think luckily we were about, you know, at the point where the culture of investing in early companies in China became somewhat like the culture in Silicon Valley, which is simply to say entrepreneurs with ideas were willing to take professional in investors in for a significant stake in their company and um, uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, a number of investors uh, with the entrepreneur and founder uh, enjoying less than 100% of the ownership would create more value than if they tried to do it with just their own money. And um, our initial concept was uh, to be small, to have a local uh, investment team, the only non-local in the original a group of general partners was uh, our son, Christopher. The founding partner was Bo Fung. Um, there were a you know, long list of young investors, some of whom are still with JUN Ventures, some of whom have become famous in their own right. But our first fund was $120 million. Um, we invested it over about three years. It's mostly been realized now. It's about a four-and-a-half-x uh, fund. Who are the, I don't, I don't mean in person, but what are the sources for Fund 1, Fund 2, Fund 3 in terms of, is it, 50% domestic Chinese sources, 50% external, or 10%, 90%? Or is that a way to even think about it? Oh, sure. No, it's an important way to think about it. Of all things, I had lunch today with Neil Shen, who's the uh, general partner and founder of Sequoia in China. And uh, that was a lot of uh, the discussion we had. The early funds were 100% offshore investors. Fund 1, Fund 2 for us was that for... Sequoia, it's been pretty much the same. So it's your 
usual list of suspects. It's the college endowments and the pension funds and uh, sovereign wealth funds, uh, you know, when you get to Europe and the rest of the world, and then family offices and wealthy, wealthy individuals. There is now a pattern evolving where there are renminbi investors, which is what you need to be if you're going to have local Chinese investors. And uh, I think what we're all waiting for with bated breath, you know, frankly, Dick, is when the renminbi is convertible on capital account, venture funds in China will look just like they do in Silicon Valley. You'll raise money in whatever currency is appropriate to the uh, uh, investor. It'll be converted to renminbi for local investment. If somebody wants dollars, you'll use dollars. But you know, my dream and the the opportunity of the century will be when you do an Alibaba listed as its anchor financial market in Shanghai and distribute the shares worldwide. I mean, that will make, in my view, the returns for Chinese venture capital uh, explode and, uh, you know, compare, I would say, to the early days of venture capital in the United States, like going back to the 80s and 90s. Okay. Does does the slowdown of China's economy from the 10, 11 percent uh, range to the five, six, or seven percent range affect your your company's performances? Does it affect your your investors' perspective on on what to do going forward? You know, Dick, China is an interesting uh, financial market now. And uh, so my you know my upfront answer is no. I I think. One of the things that's not well understood, you know, by particularly the commentary in the in the journalistic world, or you know, even in the world of economists, is that uh, given the size of the Chinese economy uh, today compared with what it was uh, ten years ago, a six point seven percent growth rate, which seems to be kind of the current modus operandi you know, adds multiple more units to GNP than a 10% growth rate did 10 years ago. And, you know, what you're really interested in is units of GNP, in my opinion, and that translates into jobs, and it translates into consumers, and it translates into the kind of stuff that makes a difference. You know, if we can still form companies in America and make a ton of money with a 2% growth rate, I mean, give me a break. Uh, the Chinese economy is about with ours now, and 6.7% is like, uh, uh, you know, that's a lot of growth. But given the change in the composition of the growth, it, it has had a tremendous effect on natural resource prices and production and, and natural resource producers like Australia, Canada, Brazil, etc. And I think that's more of a yep. change in composition than a change in the speed because of what you said, the magnitudes of a 6.7% growth compared to a 10% five years ago, eight years ago, the magnitude yeah. is there. Well, we, you know, I think we are not investing in copper mines in uh, Argentina, okay? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I would explain a lot of the uh, chagrin, you know, among industrialists around the world who are in the, in the natural resource business, you know, by way of just simply saying, look, these... Every, uh, you know, CEO, businessman, you know, strategy group is, you know, when they're making big investments in natural resources, are responsible for judging future demand, right? And if you're investing in natural resources that depend on China and, 
you know, even five or six years ago, you didn't see the possibility of a slowing growth rate. And therefore, you based your investment on the presumption that China was going to continue to grow at 10 or 12 percent. I mean, you just made a mistake. Yeah. And, and, and you didn't do your homework. <laughs> and, and would grow with the same composition of, of GNP. Uh, right, exactly. Crazy things. Uh, Jack, yeah. what, what about, so the growth rates don't affect your investment decisions or, or your future return prospects. What about uh, President Xi's anti-corruption crackdown and the arrest of 300,000 people and the, the frightening of another million people? Uh, in the in the government circles, does that have any effect on your your business activities or plans? Well, the great concern about investing in China—I don't care what the medium or what the focus—is the risk of social unrest in China. And uh, you know, for all of us who think about China a lot, the. Uh, you know, the, the, the way you avoid social unrest in a country like China is to be sure that there's enough job creation to keep, you know, those who might create a problem, uh, you know, employed. And um, I, I think there's a tremendous tension right now between the reforms that all thoughtful observers of China feel are necessary to keep the economy growing at rates that will avoid a social unrest and the power uh, at the top that is required to execute those reforms. And uh, uh, given that tension, I have to say personally as a China watcher, but certainly not an insider, I respect the need to do things that consolidate power in order to facilitate the Reforms, And as you know, Dan Rosen and the Rhodium Group did a great analysis of the third-party plenum and tried to forecast the implications of different rates of reform on the uh, economic growth out as far as 2020. And, uh, you know, they developed a, a range of, you know, if the reforms didn't happen down to 1% or 2%, if they did, 6 or 7 And uh, uh, I think the government understands that as well. So... To the extent that reforms are a manifestation of consolidating power, and a part of that is stamping out corruption, you know, it's scary, but I think it's it's necessary. And uh, like anything else, if it, uh, you know, if it, if it gets a little bit out of control, you could have problems on, on that side as well. I mean, you mentioned Wang Shishan before. I mean, I can't imagine knowing him as I do uh, a a better person to be in charge of stamping out corruption in China. I mean, if I'd been breaking the rules in the last couple of years, I'd be scared to death. <laughs> well, that was going to be my second question. Do you think he's the right person to be to be in, in charge of this uh, uh, the, these measures, the, 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 this kind of war on corruption? Yeah, he's, I mean, for all the world to see, he's a man of great integrity. He's very smart. His history is one of, uh, I, I, I would say, um, recognizing the important difference between judgment and principle. I mean, uh, he and I have had the conversation. You, 
do well if you bat 51% on judgment, but uh, when it comes to principle, you have to bat 100%. Uh, there is no compromise, and uh, he gets that. Uh, Jack, in, in closing, is there anything about U.S.-China relations and the direction you think they might be going in that upsets, could upset your optimism about the future of the Chinese economy and in particular the future of Chinese financial markets? Well, the areas where I think, uh, you know, progress can be made if it's carefully orchestrated is, uh, you know, in areas like climate change, you know, where we agree, and uh, I think that's very positive. Arts and culture are a great, you know, way to, uh, you know, cooperate going forward. Um, so is education. A lot of things can happen on the educational front. As you know, Teach for China is, uh, you know, a very big success story. And um, uh, I, I think despite conventional wisdom, there are, you know, ways on that front where we can, you know, really make strides. The... Um, Schwartzman scholar at Tsinghua. I mean, that's pretty cool. Um, where you've, you obviously have to be careful is when you get on subjects of, you know, the freedom of the press and democracy and intellectual property and stuff like that. But, um, you know, I would like to think that the, that, that the real wedge in terms of driving positively toward a future that is more about cooperation than competition, you know, really is business. We see eye to eye in business. We see eye to eye in climate change. And, you know, we want to have bright kids that are entrepreneurs and well-educated. And, you know, we share a lot of the same values when it comes to art and culture. So on, on balance, I'm, I'm optimistic. Um, but I can tell you there'll be plenty of surprises going forward, sure, no doubt. Sure. Well, it's just been delightful for me to talk with my friend Jack Wadsworth, uh, a friend of many years and a former speaker here at, at USC at our, I think it was our 1998 or 99 Asia-Pacific Business Outlook after the Asian financial crisis, and also as a colleague, uh, as a leader of the Asia Society for so many years. Jack, I'm sorry you're becoming emeritus co-chairman in Northern California, but I, I hope you'll continue to stay involved. Well, thank you so much, Dick, and I've enjoyed my association with USC and IBEAR, and uh, I can tell you, a lively emeritus trustee can probably make more trouble than a full-time trustee. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Jack. Thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you as a lively emeriti. Okay. Take care, Dick. Bye-bye. Business Class. Expert insight into the world of business. The host is Dick Drobnik, producer Pankaj Bhushan, director Dan Griffin, web developer Rick Pine, and I am Robin Garthwaite. Next on Business Class, Dick Drobnik interviews Andrew Wailagala, the Minister Connoisseur for Commercial Affairs at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo.